Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. So I wanted to go over a clip from CNBC that has gone totally viral for the prediction that's made. And I'll let the cat out of the bag right now. The prediction is that interest rates on the 10-year Treasury yield are going to 13%, one three on the 10-year. So think about where mortgage rates would be if that comes to fruition. You're, you're talking about mortgage rates at, at 16, 17%. What does that do to the housing market? Well, I mean, what does that do to everything? What does that do to the economy, for heaven's sakes? Think about that. The United States economy with a 10-year treasury at 13%. We're going to get into this clip right now. I'm going to show you guys. And while we go through this clip, I'm going to give you my thoughts. And at the end, I want to share with you some mistakes that I think people make that are in this space, some of the older guys that I have massive respect for. But I think them growing up in the 1970s with Milton Friedman, and I'm a, obviously a huge fan of Milton Friedman, but he got a lot of things wrong. He absolutely did. And so you can't just put him up on a pedestal and say that every single thing that came out of his mouth was gospel. No, no. We, we've got to be just as um, stringent and we just, we have to be just as, uh, I, I think we have to be just as skeptical with things that are coming out of any human's mouth, whether it's Thomas Sowell or Milton Friedman or someone that I, or maybe you guys on this live stream would say, you know, that guy's my, my philosophical hero as an example. We still have to be very objective and we have to take what they're saying with a healthy dose of skepticism. And we still have to, like Ronald Reagan said, trust, but verify. And uh, we'll get into that in just a moment. But first, let's get uh, to this clip from CNBC and Rick Santelli. Well, again, I, I like Rick a lot, um, but I think he really represents kind of the guys that are about 10 years older than I am. I'm 50. And so the guys that are like, 60 plus uh, that really had their worldview shaped during the 1970s and with Milton Friedman. So let's listen to this and uh, I'll give you guys my thoughts here as we go through. I personally always find anniversary dates very key and I can't help thinking about September of 81 when we had the all-time high closing yield just shy of 16%. So what I'm talking about here might be dancing between the raindrops. You never want to go against the market that is burning to the upside, but you might want to give it a pause if it looks like it's going to back away a bit. But in the grand scheme of things, I think rates are going higher. So let's go to the charts. Like I said, not my best work, but high, low, perpendicular midpoint. We always. First of all, I think it's obvious that everyone at CNBC is watching the George Gammon whiteboard videos. I mean, look at this. They're on fast money with Rick Santelli, and they're basically breaking out charts and trying to replicate. One of my whiteboard videos, for heaven's sake. So guys, at least give me a little bit of credit here. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Pay attention to those, especially when one of those points is the all-time low closing yield at a half of 1%. So you take the high, you take the low, you connect it, you find that midpoint, you draw a perpendicular line. And what you find is it just keeps you on the straight and narrow. Those are very key. The more important the spike levels are, whether it's a key high or key bottom, those make it work that much better. Now, this chart is really off scale. Remember, when you're doing these charts, you got to use logarithmic paper 
this is just a rough gauge, but there's your near 16%, SEP and 81 for your anniversary date. And the whole point of this chart is, is that we have a lot of potential room to run to the upside. So if somebody asked me and held a gun in my head and said, listen, the worst case scenario, where treasury rate's going to go 10 year, I'd say in the next seven years, you should be able to see 13 and a half, 14%. Yes. Now, I'm not saying we get there, but I really want to stress, you do not want to jump in front of this right now, but. Yeah. So he's, he's being very careful, but you can tell, especially throughout the rest of this video with the arguments that he makes that this is pretty much his base case. And I don't think it's seven years. I think it's, it's, he would say more like three years. Uh, and when he starts getting into the fundamentals, when these other people are kind of poking holes in it a little bit, you can see how animated he gets. So I, I think he's just saying that to kind of cover his butt and not seem so sensational because he is on CNBC. But watch these later bits here and you can see that I think this is something that he believes very, very strongly, which would be a consistent view with a lot of guys that are in his age group, you know, that grew up, let's say, in the gold space. And you guys know exactly who I'm talking about. A lot of guys that I would consider good friends and guys that I've learned a lot from, but they just have this framework and this worldview that was really shaped and formed by the 1970s. And it has put them into a position that for whatever reason, it prevents them from taking new information that would maybe disprove uh, some of the views they had from growing up in a time when uh, you know everyone was all about Milton Friedman and uh, government deficit spending, and that's what caused inflation and yada yada yada. If this week closes under four and three quarters, and the high yield close remains in the four sixties, you buy the market looking for a bit of a retracement to potentially get back down to four and a quarter to four thirty two. Or if it gets to four and three quarters on a closing basis first, you liquidate the trade. So you buy TLT below those levels. In other words, beta and yields are going to go down in the short term. Otherwise, we look for why are rates going higher? It's because the economy. Oh, I want to point out, point that out. This is something obviously where I definitely agree with 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 Rick. Is uh, short term, you know, rates going down? Um, I, I could see that happening. Obviously, we got to look at the yield curve. That's what it's predicting, and the yield curve is the most powerful indicator that we have. So that would make a lot of sense to me. And also I want to point out too, that if you're saying, George, could rates get to 13% over the next seven years? Sure, of course. I mean, they could get to 130%. I mean, who knows? I mean, if you would have asked me if we'd have a global pandemic in 2019, that was not on the on the bingo card. I, I would have given that a 0. 0.0000001 probability, especially seeing uh, if you would have included the government's response to that global pandemic in the probability equation, right? So we, we can have these black swan events. We, we could have anything that is possible, but it is it, it probable. And I, and seven years again, maybe I could, I could see that, but I think he is more, <laughs> regardless of what he's saying, I think his view is that we're going to get there in the next, let's say two or three years. And, uh, I, I would, argue that the probability of interest rates going to 13% in the next couple of years is just unbelievably low. And the gangbusters are because- Tyler, Tyler Matheson, everybody clap for who loves Tyler. I don't know what he didn't bring up today. I'm pretty a Chicagoan, Milton Friedman. And when he did, one of my 50 year veterans from the trading floor called me and said, boy- How many year veteran? 50 year veteran. 
right? So again, this is a guy whose who's worldview was, when he was very, very young and impressionable, he grew up in the 1970s. You know, that was just the, I'd have to do the math, and he was in his 20s or something like that. And he gets his first job on Wall Street. He doesn't know anything, and he's just absorbing as much information as he possibly can, and he's living through the inflation of the 1970s. He's living through gold going from, you know, wherever it started to say 30, 40 bucks all the way up to 800. You know, he's, he's living through interest rates going from, let's say 5% up to 16% on the 10 year, as Rick pointed out, that this is what he is. This is the decade that they're living through when they're learning everything in the, their twenties. And then by the time they get into their thirties, this, it's just been solidified in their brain that this is how the global monetary system works. So whenever they get new information that would cause someone to pause and say, wait a minute here, this new information is completely inconsistent with what I saw in the 1970s. Maybe I should reevaluate. Instead of doing that, they just double down and they just rationalize why this new information just isn't relevant. And Rick does that here in just a moment. You'll see. He's spot on. I had many meetings with Milton that if you want to know where inflation is taking the markets and why, just look at government spending. The vigilantes have new horses and they're riding. And I really do think that is the answer. We are spending too much. We are not learning to cut back. As a matter of fact, I think we're out of control as we approach a $2 trillion deficit. And this is the market's way to get Washington's attention. Right. So there, obviously, I agree that the government is absolutely out of control. We've got to rein in the deficits, but but not because the 10-year treasury is going to explode higher and because we're going to have the bond vigilantes. Now, the 10-year treasury may explode higher, but for other reasons, like growth and inflation expectations, which may or may not have something to do with government spending. I mean, let's look at Japan, right? They're, what, 250% debt to GDP? And all Rick has to do, for heaven's sakes, is look at a chart, which we're going to do here in just a moment, of government spending uh, as a percentage of GDP, or excuse me, government debt, the GDP, and look at it in the 1970s and look at it in the 1980s. Because if it is true, what Milton Friedman was saying back in the 1970s, that the government deficit spending is what creates consumer price inflation, then as the government debt to GDP increases, you should also see the rate of inflation increase. And then based on that logic, you should see the interest rate on the 10-year treasury increase as well. And again, we're going to go through the rest of this clip here, and then we're going to go over to these charts, um, which I think kind of, uh, well, let's get into it. And again, I want to be very clear. I'm not trying to be disrespectful to uh, these guys that are, I would put in, in the bucket of Rick Santelli. These guys are amazing. I've learned so much from these people. I have a huge amount of respect uh, for them, but I just wish that they would challenge their own views aggressively. Um, I mean, that's what I do with my views. I think you, I, I don't know why it's so easy for me to do that, but yet it, it's, it's very, very hard for a lot of people, especially guys, once they get past the age of 60, it's like their brain just kind of cuts off to any new information. I guess that's why they say that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's always been the case though, hasn't it? To some degree, Rick, so- No, why? 
QE. QE changed everything. Right. So do you think that the Fed, whoever the Fed may be within the next 10 years, is actually going to allow a rate that is above 13 You can squeeze a water balloon. Will they be independent? from Sunday, but eventually it pops out somewhere. They are running out of little tricks to pull out of their bag. And in my opinion, the quantitative easing removed many signals in the market that now it's trying to put back in place. And they could do as they wish. If they keep tinkering with this, the problem is we have too many large uh, economies that are going to be in the same boat. And who's going to end up buying this paper? So, so the presumption. So that's the idea here is that the, the government is going to run these massive deficits. The supply is going to increase. And there's going to be no one there that wants to hold these treasuries because they think that eventually the Federal Reserve is going to have to monetize the debt, come in and buy these treasuries. The, the Fed's balance sheet's going to explode, and that's going to create consumer price inflation, which basically devalues the bond that you have. That bond is nominal. Therefore, if you're getting, let's say, a 6 or 7% interest rate, uh, but yet the value of those dollars are decreasing because the Fed's balance sheet is exploding, and no one's going to want to hold that because it's a sucker's bet, right? You're guaranteed to lose money. And therefore, you have all this supply coming online. You have demand absolutely plummeting and then throw in the BRICS currencies. And that's why the interest rate goes from, let's say, 5% where it is today up to 13% very, very quickly. This is the argument. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow Rebel Capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Now let's go over to some charts. The first thing that uh, Rick was talking about is this idea that Milton Friedman had that government spending is what created consumer price inflation. Um, it, it can. I, I totally get it. I totally get it. Because especially if you look at the aggregate balance sheet, because what you're doing is you're taking, you know, let's look, look at money from savings, putting it into checking. That's going to increase velocity. That definitely gives inflation a tailwind. For sure. Uh, also, you're increasing the aggregate balance sheet. What I mean by that is you're taking savings, you're replacing it with a treasury, and then you're taking those savings and turning them into checking. Okay, well, that person that traded their savings for a treasury, their balance sheet, the asset side has not changed. The composition of the asset side of the balance sheet has changed to a certain degree. I mean, it's, it's that, and that even that's debatable because basically a treasury is a cash equivalent. But the asset side of their balance sheet has not changed, okay? But when the government takes that money and spends it back into the economy, let's say through a stimmy check, well, now all of a sudden, the person that collected the check from the government spending, their checking account balance has gone up by the amount of the check. In other words, the asset side of their balance sheet has increased. So if you look at the aggregate balance sheet 
of the United States economy, then it has gone up. So theoretically, you've got more purchasing power, especially if you're someone like me that believes the banks aren't constrained at all by creating more currency units other than just through counterparty risk. So I, I totally, but what's weird is that's not the argument they make. <laughs> I think that's the correct argument, but that doesn't mean that we're still going to have consumer price inflation. That just means that it's a tailwind, right? That doesn't mean that interest rates are going to spike higher. That just means it's a tailwind. We always have to remember that it isn't just one or two variables that make the price of a bond go up or down. It isn't just one or two variables that make consumer prices go up or down. We're talking about thousands, if not millions of variables. So that's why I always encourage you guys to look at these complex dynamics in terms of cross currents, just like in the ocean. In the ocean, you don't have just one current going this way or one current going that way. You have all of these currents coming from different directions, and it's just a matter of which one is going to be the most powerful. But you have all of these currents that are bumping up against each other simultaneously at all times. That's how we have to look at like the FX market. That's how we have to look at the bond market as far as prices. And we also have to look at that uh, at consumer price inflation using the exact same system. So now let's go over and look at some specific charts here, guys. So remember when they were t when Rick was talking about how Milton Friedman saying that government spending is why the only reason it's just, it's it's proven it's a given, right? When the government spending increases, that's what causes inflation. Well, it, it's a lot more complex than that. And I would encourage Rick to look at this chart. And I'm using Rick as a proxy again for all these guys that are you know that are about ten years older than I am that grew up in the 1970s that have been massively influential, are great guys that mean well, super, super smart. I've got a ton of respect for. And what's interesting too, it's the young guys that are now getting into the business. They're just using the exact same arguments, except just applying it to Bitcoin instead of gold. But anyway, so the, the uh, argument there, government spending increases in play. Okay, well, what was government spending? What was the debt to GDP during the 1970s? 30%, 30 guys. 30. So I'm not saying that that's a, a good number. I think that's still high. <laughs> I'd like to see it under 10%. And that's what we had in the late 1800s when the economy was really on fire because government spending only represented a very, very small fraction of overall uh, GDP, right? So, but anyway, the debt to GDP, 1970s, around 30%. Now, what happens in the 1980s? the debt explodes higher. In fact, the debt to GDP doubled in the 1980s. It doubled. But let's look at what happened to bond prices. Let's look at what happened to the yield on the 10-year treasury in the 1980s. So here we got a chart starting at, at, at Rick's 1981 there. And if we go from 1981, it is true, the 10-year treasury right around 16%. Well, we fast forward and keep in mind, during a decade, when the government debt to GDP doubled, it went up by 100%, and the 10-year Treasury yield went from 16% down to 8%, cut in half. So you would think that if you were someone that believed that government spending, deficit spending, 
you know, the the debt is really bad for ten, the, the the yields, meaning that they go up, right? It's very bad for bond prices, meaning they go down. Because look, the bond vigilantes, right? They're going to come in and like Rick said, they're going to keep the government in check. Because if that government spending gets too high, if that debt to GDP gets too high, well, they're going to sell, sell off all these bonds, all these treasuries, and then no one's going to want to buy them. And then that's going to force the government to be more prudent. How do you get, how do you come to that conclusion? Like theoretically, it makes sense, but just look at a chart for heaven's sakes. Just look at a chart. Just look at this chart and let's go back. Now in the uh, 2008 to 2019, we've got debt to GDP going from 60% up to hundred percent. So again, you would expect to see bond prices go way down, meaning yields go way, way up. What did we see? We saw bond prices or yields. I should start with that. We saw yields go down, not up. So you say, whoa, whoa, George, didn't you listen to Rick Santelli? It's, it's QE, man. It's QE. The, the Fed came in and bought all of these treasuries. That's going to increase the demand for treasuries. So obviously... This is what made the treasury prices go up to all this additional demand, all this buying from the Fed. If you wouldn't have had that uh, buying from the Fed, then the bond vigilantes would have taken over because the government debt was exploding higher. The deficits were exploding. Everything that you want to talk about with the last three years happened from in the 1980s, and it happened from 2008 to call it 2019, 2020, right? But... There's a problem. Let's go ahead and look at a chart of QE and the 10-year treasury yield. And for those of you who watch my whiteboard videos, this chart will probably be pretty familiar. I've used it many, many times. This blue line represents the 10-year treasury yield. On the left, you've got the interest rates. The green represents the time when the Fed was doing quantitative easing. What happens? The interest rates go down because the Fed is out there buying, creating all of this demand that would not have otherwise been there. No, the opposite. Interest rates go up, not down. And then look at what happened to interest rates when the Fed stops doing QE. Then they go back down. Right here, QE2, what happened to interest rates? They go up. After QE2, what happens? They plummet. QE3, exact same thing. Now it is true that when they came out and did QE4, infinity, what do you want to, whatever you want to call it, we saw the interest rates start to go up. But this was a result of the Fed increasing interest rates at the front end of the curve. It, it really didn't have anything to do with quantitative easing. And if you're someone that's on CNBC, if you're one of these guys that goes to all these conferences that are super, super famous, you know, and in your argument is always that, oh, well, the Fed's balance sheet, the Fed's balance sheet, the Fed is artificially keeping interest rates low maybe at the front end of the curve, but how do you know that interest rates wouldn't have been that low otherwise? Because look at the long end of the curve. And then you definitely can't argue that the Fed kept interest rates artificially low on the 10-year. How? Every single time they did QE, at least with QE 1, 2, 3, interest rates went up. So if anything, they did the opposite of what you're arguing. And this chart is readily available with a five-second Google search. So 
again, I think the main point that I want to get through in this video is some of the flaws that we have in our human hardwiring that prevent us, and I'll throw myself in there. I mean, we're all guilty of this to a certain degree, right? Let's be honest here. But we have to recognize that this is a flaw in our human hardwiring, that when we, in our formidable years, when we shape our worldview, it's very easy. In fact, that's probably our default as human beings to stay in that mindset forever and, 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 and subconsciously ignore any information that is contrary to this view that you formed, especially when you get over 50. And I'm right there myself at 50 years old. And then when you get over 60, it just seems like you completely ignore any new information. And your worldview is your worldview. Your framework is your framework, and it ain't going to change. If you thought that government deficit spending made interest rates go up and you're now 60 or 61 years old, you're going to carry that view or you're likely to carry that view until you you know move on to the, to the next world. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so I think as prudent investors, we have to recognize that flaw in our own hardwiring. To make and, and to be hyper focused and, and very cognizant that we are susceptible to making these mistakes in our own life, to try to do as much as we can to prevent that and to make sure that we're always trying to poke holes in our own theories constantly, constantly. And I think that is when you look at the Stan Druckenmillers as an example of the guys who have done very, very well in investing for many, many decades, you see that they're very good at changing their mind, almost on a dime. And they're very good, and they're always very self-deprecating, it seems. And I think the reason is because they have this agility, and they never get stuck in the mud with this one view. They're always trying to prove themselves wrong. You know, when I was in that uh, macro event with Hugh in St. Bart's, it kind of dawned on me, and this is one of the things that I said a few times, and it really resonated with everyone there. I said, it seems like the pros, the investment pros that have done very, very well, are always trying to prove themselves wrong, where the investment amateurs are always trying to prove themselves right. It's a completely different mindset. And I would encourage you, when you're setting up your portfolio, to always try to prove yourself wrong. I think you're going to do much, much better if you employ that strategy. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism, and we'll see you on the next video.